0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So, I'm pretty sure Palm Sunday has to be the most emotionally complicated day of the Christian year, Um, because, you know, it starts out kind of feeling like a party. You know, we're outside, and we're singing, and the flowers are blooming, and kids are looking cute, waving their palms around, and everything seems great. But then the service takes what kind of feels like a 180-degree turn. And then we have to come in, sit down, and start listening to Isaiah talking about a man of sorrows getting wounded for our healing. And then we have to listen to this extremely long, uninterrupted, kind of awkward story about Jesus fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy with his betrayal, his trial, and his crucifixion. And we don't even get to stand back and just observe this whiplash from a distance. Whether we wanted it or not, when we showed up today, we got given a part in the whole drama. And at first, the part we're given is kind of fun. We get to be Hosanna singers or palm wavers. But then we're given a second part that's not quite as fun. We have to play the part of the murderous crowd crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus. It really is a kind of emotional whiplash and to make sense of it today what we're going to do is we're going to dig into the passage that we read when we were outside Luke chapter 19 28 to 40. Um, you can go ahead and turn there with me if you have your Bible um, there's also some Bibles in the in the pockets of the chairs in front of you too. Um, we're going to look at the story of Jesus triumphal entry into Jerusalem and I think we'll find even in that joyful scene even there there are seeds that get planted for the tension that we enter into today. So as you're turning in your Bibles, um, I just want to give you a little bit of context for this scene that we're we're looking at. Jesus began his ministry in an area called Galilee. It was the rural kind of area where he grew up. But halfway through the Gospel of Luke, about halfway through his ministry, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, And the whole rest of the gospel is essentially a travel narrative about Jesus' teaching and healing on his journey to Jerusalem. And here in Luke chapter 19, the story reaches its climax. Jesus' whole ministry has been leading up to this point where he would come to Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish world, the city of kings, the city built around God's own temple. This is where Jesus had always been headed. And so Jesus and his disciples have been traveling up most recently from the city of Jericho, which is actually the lowest city on earth, 850 feet below sea level. They've been traveling up through these steep hills to the Mount of Olives, 2,700 feet above sea level. Um, I've actually got a picture of what this road looks like today, I think. Do we have a slide of that? Oh, never mind, not that one. Anyways, trust me, it's really steep. It's pretty jagged. It's tough even today. And so imagine 2,000 years ago, traveling up steep hills, up and down ravines by foot. But it was a famous road. It was a road that Jewish pilgrims traveled every year to come to Jerusalem for the annual festival of the Passover, a time where they remembered God's miraculous deliverance of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And so as Jesus and his disciples climb these hills, there's this sense of anticipation that starts to grow. You know, for a long time, Jesus had focused on people and places on the margins. He tried to keep his identity as the Messiah kind of on the down low. But now there's no more beating around the bush. There's no more wandering from town to town. Jesus is on a mission. And everything he does from this point on is carefully planned and extremely intentional. And the first thing he does as they climb up the Mount of Olives is he sends a couple of his disciples ahead to requisition a young donkey for him to ride on, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tithe on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, we don't know if Jesus knew the owner of the donkey and had made arrangements in advance, or if he had some kind of divine foreknowledge that the donkey would be there and that the owner would be very open to letting it just go for the Lord's service. We don't know. But regardless, the disciples do as he says. They get the donkey and bring it back. And in verse 35, They brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt, and they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, it's a scene here that doesn't really make a lot of sense in our modern context. Um, People generally don't just throw their jackets on the ground uh, on a regular basis. Uh, But what's happening here is that Jesus is bringing to life an ancient prophecy from the prophet Zechariah about the coming of Israel's true king the Messiah. Zechariah said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. Jesus' disciples and all the other pilgrims that were probably on this road as well, they all knew this prophecy. It would have been something they grew up hearing all the time. And so as they bring him this donkey, they understand this is a coronation ceremony. And so they carry out the ancient coronation tradition of laying their their jackets and their cloaks down on the ground so that their king wouldn't even have to be sullied by the dirt beneath him. Continuing, verse 37. As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, they just crested the peak, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then they sing out a line from this traditional pilgrimage psalm, Psalm 118. But they replace a key word. The psalm actually reads, Blessed is the one who comes. But they sing out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There's no question about it. The massive crowds of pilgrims and disciples are crying out that Jesus is their Messiah. He is the true king that they had waited for for centuries. And the only people who don't seem to be caught up in the excitement of the moment are a few of the Pharisees who say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. We sometimes give the Pharisees a hard rap and it doesn't actually tell us why they're concerned about what's going on, but their concern very well might've been this. Israel was not an independent nation at the time. They had been conquered and made part of the Roman Empire and they were ruled by Roman governors. And when people in Roman territory did anything that smelled like revolution, or even when there were just unruly crowds that got out of hand, Rome had a consistent track record of coming in quickly, cracking down brutally, slaughtering people, and nailing them to crosses by the main roads so that everybody would understand who was in charge. The Pharisees may have had good reason to be concerned. But Jesus answers them with what has to be one of the greatest mic drop moments in the entire Bible. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God, could not be hidden any longer. The very rocks beneath his feet knew him as the one who had created them. The land itself praised him as not only the King of Israel, but the King of all creation. And so again, how did we go From the crowds praising Jesus, proclaiming him as king, to calling for his crucifixion and asking for the release of a man named Barabbas instead. I think the key is actually found in the very next verse. We didn't read it this morning. But Jesus has finally crested the peak of the Mount of Olives. He's begun his descent towards Jerusalem. And finally, there's a clearing, and the city opens up in view before him. You know, when we take our students to Pittsburgh every year, we take our college students for an annual Jubilee conference. We drive up in a big 15-passenger van, and if you've ever driven to Pittsburgh from here, you'll know you get there by entering into a tunnel. You can't see anything, and then when you come out the other side, all of a sudden, Pittsburgh is there in all of its glory. I've got a picture for you. Like, that's the scene you see when you come out of the tunnel. It's epic. And I picture it being kind of like that: As the clearing finally opens, Jesus finally gets a view of the city of Jerusalem across the valley. Got a picture of what that might have looked like from the Mount of Olives. But instead of getting excited, like all of his disciples were, look at Jesus' response. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over, it, saying, "Would that you!" Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Would that you have known the things that make for peace. This scene is is really poignant. I picture the crowds around him still crying out, still chanting his name and praising him, and he's there in the middle of all of them, weeping, because he knows that they do not understand what true peace is or how to obtain it. See, peace is one of these words, I think, that we use a lot and we think we know what we mean, but sometimes it doesn't mean what we think it means. And not everybody who uses the word peace means the same thing. Case in point was ancient Rome. During the time of Jesus, Rome liked to tell everybody through their propaganda that they were the bringer of universal peace, the Pax Romana. They said that they had brought peace to all the world by ending war, everywhere within their borders. But by peace, what they meant was order imposed through violent conquest, heavy taxation, and then serious beatdown of anyone who dared resist. That was their kind of peace. Um, and you know, I think if we're honest, that kind of peace is still with us today. Some of us today still are content to treat peace as the way that we'll violently defend our own law and order without examining whether the order is true peace, or not. And in fact, around the same time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, there was another procession coming in from the other side, the procession of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, coming on a chariot with war horses, hundreds of armed soldiers coming to Jerusalem to keep the peace during the Passover festival. Because remember, Passover was a celebration of Israel's liberation from an oppressive regime. And Rome wanted to make sure that nobody there would ever think that that might happen again. So they brought in their peacekeeping force to deter any would-be revolutionaries. But it wasn't just Rome that had a kind of wacky idea of peace. The Jewish people also had their own ways of trying to define and to pursue peace in the midst of the harsh world that we live in. And they fell into a few different camps in Jesus' day. Some Jews tried to find peace by escaping all of the brokenness and sinfulness of society, moving out into the desert and living in holy enclaves, totally separated from the world. They were called the Essenes. They're the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've ever heard of those. Some tried to find peace through violent resistance, either through guerrilla warfare and assassinations or through drumming up armed rebellion by the masses. They were called the zealots. Barabbas was one of them. Others tried to find peace through compromise. And they're realists. You know, they knew they couldn't overthrow the Romans, so they figured they might as well make the best of a bad situation. Can't beat them, join them. These folks tended to be on the wealthier side, and they had a lot to lose by regime change. And so they worked with Roman rule and sometimes they even did better. They didn't; weren't particularly liked by most Jews of the time who were poor and struggled to get by, let alone pay the taxes of Rome. But they lived comfortably as a result. They were called the Sadducees. And finally, some Jews tried to find peace through holy living. And they thought, you know, society has become corrupt. It's morally bankrupt. We need to get back to living biblically again and they believed they could just get everybody to stop living immorally and obey the word of God, then there would finally be peace. Those were the Pharisees. I wonder, did these groups sound at all familiar to you? You know, because the names have changed, times are different, our situation's not identical, but these sure do sound like some of the main strategies that even today we use to try to find peace in our community. And I wonder, which one of these do you identify the most with? Where do you turn for peace? Escapism? Social change by any means necessary? Self-preservation by force? Compromise and comfort? Morality and culture wars? I know there are ways that I look to every one of these to give me peace. It is so easy today to check out and to escape through entertainment and distraction. It's easy to get fired up about social issues and think that activism is our only hope. It's easy for me to choose to live comfortably rather than giving sacrificially, serving the people around me. That's a temptation for me every day. And I think that putting our hope in our own moral goodness might be the one of these that gets celebrated the most in the church. And so as Jesus stood looking at Jerusalem, with the crowds around him shouting his name, declaring him king, each of these groups had their own hopes for what they wanted Jesus to do. Each of them wanted him to champion their cause. Some wanted him to take up the sword and lead an army against the Romans. Some wanted him to crack down on immorality and corruption. Some wanted him to assure the Romans that he didn't actually mean any harm and he submitted to their rule. And some maybe just wanted to screw it all and go with them out into the desert and enjoy their own private spirituality and let the world burn. Each of them had their own definition of peace, and they expected Jesus to give them that. And they were willing to follow him and to call him king as long as he gave them what they wanted. And when he didn't, they turned on him. is the hard reality that Palm Sunday makes us face. That if we're honest, we often do the same thing. We like Jesus because we think that he'll champion our cause and help us get what we want. We turn him into a symbol or a figurehead for something else that we're really pursuing. And we think he'll fit neatly in our categories and reinforce what we already think about the world. And when that doesn't happen, when he rejects our slogans and disrupts our plans and fails to be what we expected, we are quick to turn to more practical, efficient ways to get what we need. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Because instead of escape, he rode into the heart of the city. Instead of a war horse, he rode on a humble donkey. Instead of cozying to power, he criticized both the political and religious authorities. Criticized this religious, self the self-righteous religious fanatics he praised the faithful poor. He disappointed conservatives, liberals, people interested in the status quo and people wanting revolution. He confused the crowds and he broke apart their categories. And when he was betrayed by one of his disenchanted followers, he told his defenders to put away their swords and healed his captor instead. And so Even when the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, offered to release Jesus, the crowds no longer wanted him. And instead, they called for the release of Barabbas, a man who had been arrested for his role in a violent insurrection, we're told. This was a man of action who fit in their categories. He may have failed at overthrowing the Romans the first time, but at least they understood him and his methods made sense to them. And so days after crying out, blessed be the king, the crowds shouted out, crucify. Him. This is the tension of Palm Sunday. That Jesus has come as the true king of the world to give us the peace that we need and that we long for. The king that the prophet Zechariah foretold. But he has not come to do this in any way that we might expect. Jesus has come, as God promised through another Zechariah, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so the question for us today is this. Will we trust him to be our guide? Will we admit that we do not by ourselves know the things that make for peace? Will we allow him to define and to show us what true peace is, the peace that we were made for. Because ultimately, peace can't be identified with any of our programs, causes, or even our feelings. It's not a destination that we get to determine ahead of time. Peace is what we discover when we come to our king and are willing to follow him wherever he might take us. It's the green pastures that we find on the way as we follow our good shepherd, because he himself is our peace. And though we don't always know what it will look like ahead of time, we do know the way that Jesus goes. It was the way that nobody on that first Palm Sunday expected the way of the cross. In the ultimate reversal of expectations, Jesus, the Messiah, even more, God in the flesh, chose the way of sacrificial love, taking all of our violence, escapism and compromise on himself and dying in our place, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and grants us his peace instead. And so the invitation I want to leave leave you all with today is this. This week is Holy Week. It's a week that's all about following in Jesus' footsteps through the last week of his life, It's an opportunity to let him guide our feet into the way of peace, to learn what peace looks like as we see his heart and the heart of the Father on full display. We see it in Maundy Thursday, where we we remember and reenact the humility of Jesus in washing his disciples' feet. We see it in Good Friday, where we stare into the unfathomable heart of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf on Easter Vigil on Holy Saturday, where we rehearse the whole drama from creation of the world to its salvation through Christ's victory over death, and an Easter Sunday where we celebrate that the Lord is risen and gives us new life. I encourage you to go all in this week to whatever extent you're able. Come, participate in all the services. Come to campus anytime this week. Pray through the Stations of the Cross. Join us for morning prayer in the mornings at 8.30 here in the sanctuary. Read and meditate on the last week of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke from chapter 19 where we read today to the end. Read through it slowly. Don't skip over the parts that challenge you. Sit in those parts. Journal about whatever it is that comes up and God brings to your attention. Enter into the story and allow the Jesus that you find there to surprise you, to challenge your assumptions, to change you. Ask him to show you who he really is and where it is in your life right now that he is inviting you to follow him. And take comfort. Because even when we stumble, even when we praise him with impure motives and wrong expectations, Jesus doesn't tell the crowd or us to be quiet. He welcomes us. And he even welcomes our imperfect praise. He may not be the king that we would have chosen for ourselves, but he's the king that we need because he's the king who loves us, who knows us, who made us, who redeems us, and because we are the very ones that he came to die for. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, Help us to know you for who you really are. Let us lead, let you help us to let you lead us in the way that you know we need to go. Work in our hearts this week to encounter you in a new way. Take away our expectations. Meet us where we are, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.